0: Welcome to The Meaningful Life. We're available on Apple, Spotify, Podbeam, Amazon Music, and wherever you find your podcasts. What would it be like if every time you went to work, you came face-to-face with all the most difficult stuff in your life? Inherited guilt, shame, anxiety? That's the path my witness today is on. Since 2016, Andy West has gone into prisons to teach philosophy, and help the inmates have conversations about difficult topics like freedom, time, identity, and forgiveness. But this work means he has to confront his own past, namely that his father, his brother, and his uncle all spent time in prison. Andy West works for the Philosophy Foundation, and he has written a wonderful book, The Life Inside, a memoir of prison, family, and philosophy. So what persuaded you to start teaching philosophy in prisons? Because I imagine that growing up, it would have been the last thing you would have imagined yourself doing.
2: (laughs) Well, I think philosophical questions, they're important to every life. I think they're urgent in every life. Questions about whether we're really free or not. Questions about whether time controls us or we can control time. Questions about whether we have good reason to hope or we should hope despite there being no reason to do it. All of these questions are important to me, you, and and everyone, I think. I think those questions perhaps intensify in a prison setting. You know, someone who's doing time, thinking about whether we can control time or not. Someone who is banged up for 23 hours a day, discussing whether freedom is foremost a a, a mental thing. It's about sort of... uh, a mental freedom, or it's a physical thing. You know, these are really immediate questions in that setting. Hope, shame, forgiveness too. So I've always thought that the prison setting and the circumstances people are finding themselves in there, it was just, you know, so so fertile philosophically. So, so I suppose that's my intellectual reason. And then, of course, you know, I have a horse in the race here. There's, there's a personal reason as well in that, As you said, my my brother and my dad and my uncle were all in prison and, you know, I grew up in my nan's uh, East London Council flat hearing all these stories from the landing, uh, you know, often shared with great humour and entertainment about life inside. And, you know, Christmas Eve, you know, from a young age, I would be visiting family inside because they wouldn't be home on Christmas Day. I think one of the things that's very strange if you've experienced that, if you've glimpsed the edges of that world, as I had, you know, I'd never quite been inside. I'd, I'd never crossed the wall as a child, you know, and I've still, I've never been behind the door as such. I, I go at home at five o'clock, but I've, I've glimpsed the edges of that world and, and had that knowledge from a young age. You come out and you realize how few people have. And that there's this, this sense that there's this kind of bad smell in the air and only you can smell it. And you're sort of thinking, can nobody else smell that? You know, there's this just miles away from, you know, ordinary residential places, places where people go to work, go to school, you know, HMP Pentonville is a case in point here. Uh, It's in King's Cross. It's next to Google. It's next to St. Martin's college. It's next to all these places where people live a very smooth existence comparatively. You know, there's this, there's this kind of, disaster that's happening just just a few minutes away from all that. And and I think with that perhaps comes a sense of responsibility, a sense that if you know about that place, you kind of have to, you can't let it fall from your view. You can't, there's a sense of, I've always felt this kind of duty that I need to keep paying some kind of recognition to the existence of this place because it's obscured from everyone else it's obscured by the the great wall that is around it uh, it 's obscured by the ideological you know disinformation that we receive about what prisons really like in the, in the news and in the media it's obscured by our own psychological projections of what we think prison is how it stands for our worst fears of chaos and violence. But actually it's it's almost always something different to all of those things and it's it's always something more human. And so I think having that sense from an early age was formative for me and you know, as part of the reason I, I do the work I do and and that I wrote the book that I did.
0: When I was preparing this interview, I was thinking about my own experiences with prison because I grew up in Bedford where there is a prison that's right in the middle of the town and I must have been past it a million times, but I never really thought about what happened inside. When I was a a student, I had a a friend who ended up in an open prison and I went to visit him on uh, one occasion. And then later, when I worked at a radio station for some bizarre reason, we decided to record a country and Western concert in there, mainly because, you know, there were famous concerts by people like Johnny Cash that were recorded in Mm. famous prisons. And so we went in and recorded this concert I mean it was in uh, Chelmsford young offenders probably the, the <laughs> I don't think they were that keen on country western music but we brought a female singer along with us and she went down very well as you can possibly imagine <laughs> and it left a huge impact on me because it was incredibly claustrophobic and even though I could I was you know hosting the event so I could go to our recording van which was out in the yard at mm-hmm. any point that I wanted to, and I just had to ask somebody, and I could go through, but even then, I felt this huge amount of being shut in. but I think that the the biggest surprise to me when I was preparing this is I sort of have a very vivid picture of what it must have been like for you going into these prisons, not actually from my own personal experience, but because I've seen it so many times on films. And I think that's probably giving us a false impression what we see on on films and TV programs. Am I right about that?
2: I think it depends slightly on the the TV program. There was a great, a very well written three part series here here last year called Time by Jimmy McGovern and Sean Bean was in it. And I remember hearing McGovern talk in an interview about the kind of authenticity of what he'd made. You know, it was kind of set in an old Victorian prison, which I think almost has a kind of cinematic grandeur to it anyway, and it was it was about someone trying to survive an intensely violent wing whilst trying to sort of maintain their moral integrity and to see if that would be at all possible but McGovern said the one thing he couldn 't capture and that 's so difficult to capture is boredom that actually although although prison is you know it can be punctuated by these these moments of violence that the real sort of ambience of Prison, I think, is is a sort of dreariness. You know, things not happening on time or not happening at all. You're supposed to be unlocked at eight o'clock. That could mean eight o'clock. That could mean half past eight. That could mean ten. And just people being resigned to that kind of inefficiency. People who've been sort of waiting so long for something, for some hearing or some course or some event that you know they've sort of given up on waiting, and and so. The claustrophobia is very real. The violence is very real. I I think that one of the truest kind of qualities of prison is, is just this kind of dreary boredom.
0: What impact do you think having your father being a criminal and being arrested had on you as a child?
2: Well, I think from a young age, there was a sort of sins of the father, inherited shame, inherited guilt kind of feeling it's obviously deeply irrational in that he's his own man and I'm my own man. And, you know, I I can't be tried for his crimes, but I think on a more kind of primal level that, you know, that stuff goes very deep in terms of family honor, family identity, bloodlines, and it's a lot harder to shake. I'm I'm pleased to say that these days I'm, that guilt is less burdensome and and has less purchase on me. But growing up, it was some real kind of states of of dread.
0: So tell me a story that would sort of illustrate that and bring it to life for my listeners.
2: Well, I suppose just, just the sight of police cars, you know, the seeing police, you know, looking out my window and seeing police walk down my street or hearing police cars and kind of not being able to tell if they're getting further away or closer and sort of this paranoiac sense that they were getting closer and that they were coming for me. and I hadn't done anything to warrant any kind of arrest, but to the headspace I was in at the time, that was incidental. You know, the guilt comes first, we'll figure out the details later. It's a very kind of Kafkaesque state to be in. And I think one of the ways it kind of manifested was obsessive fears about bringing about some great harm or some catastrophe. So have I left the oven on? Have I burnt down the house? Have I killed everyone in the building kind of thing? And, you know, needing to go back and check the oven a lot, taking photos of my oven before I leave the house and then leaving the house and then checking the photos. But, you know, on days of real, wild, irrational guilt, you know, that checking the photo wouldn't be enough. There was just this obscure sense that, I I must have done something wrong and surely I'll be punished too. You know, thankfully I've had kind teachers and good therapists and, you know, considering where I come from, a life of incredible possibility. So I've been able to work through it, but, you know, in in my teenage years, it was was really burdensome and, and difficult.
0: And it must have been particularly difficult with your brother as well, because I think there's a quote. There's an age difference, isn't there? About six years, is it?
2: Oh, um, he's just over a decade older, in fact. Right. Yeah, yeah.
0: So, growing up, you must have looked up to him.
2: Yes. Yeah. I think. Um. I think that was a different sensation. In that, I I felt a kind of shame, but perhaps it almost a survivor's shame. On that front, it wasn't that. I'm going to be bad like him. It was it was a feeling of great um, sadness on his behalf. You know, he was in the throes of a heroin addiction, which can, you know, see you land in prison a lot, either because you've got the drug on you, you're dealing the drug, you're shoplifting, you're just, just the lifestyle that that brings is very chaotic and corrupting a lot of the time. And, yeah, you know, I would leave you know, six years old, whatever, visiting him in prison and getting to go home and just this sense of how strange that was, how unfair that was, how what in philosophy we call kind of moral luck, how it's not always merit that lands us where we are, but the adversity, the experiences we've had, our constitution, our character, our predispositions. I think your siblings can be almost like you get to glimpse yourself in a kind of another possible world. You know, if a couple of the variables had been different, this is who you could have been. The the logic was entirely arbitrary for me as to why he was in prison and I wasn't, and I suppose that kind of cashed out as a kind of survivor's shame. Again, I've been very lucky to have the support from people who could, and the education, to kind of label these sensations, to, to see them. Kind of in a dispassionate way, and to try and kind of work through them into something more more life affirming.
0: Because I imagine a six year old would just not have the words for for this, would they? I mean, it's yeah. just it's just crushing, isn't it?
2: Yeah, they're very the, the feelings are entirely obscure to you at the time, but you know they're still there. You know.
0: Well, the the good news is your your brother, since having a son of his own, is leading a, a life of. Um, I'm not quite certain the right word, but normality. He's clean and everything's going well. Mm-hmm. How did he feel when you said to him, mm, I think I'm going to go into prison and um, and teach philosophy? What was his reaction to that announcement? Uh, annoyed. Annoyed.
2: Why can't you do another job? Like, you know, you've got a degree, you could do another job if you wanted. Why would you have to go in there? Yeah, like... You know, I'm his little brother and compared to him, you know, I'm I'm very innocent. He's seen an awful lot of things and, uh, you know, he, he knows kind of what that world is like at its most severe or corrupt or whatever. So, you know, he really didn't want me going in there. Uh, at the same time, I think he feels a kind of pride uh, about it and he sees the value of it and he can see the value of it for my students I suppose the uncomfortable thing for him is that he knows that my preoccupation with that world comes out of partly the kind of life that he had when he was younger. And so he. I think he feels a bit sad that he may have kind of troubled me in that way. I don't feel that way myself. And, you know, I I feel like I have a wonderful job, an incredibly meaningful job. You know, I, I certainly don't have any resentment for my, my brother on that.
0: So, take me through going in there for the first time to work. How did you? How did you prepare for it? Well,
2: I was I was working with my my great colleague um, Mike Cox, a philosopher from King's College. We were in a high security prison, and I suppose I just sort of modelled my understanding of what these men would be like on the men I grew up with. Thinking, well, you know, I've got a lot of experience of people who've been in prison. So, and often what that meant is, you know, coming from a very kind of working class, chaotic family where, you know, not many people stayed in school beyond the age of 15, is, you know, I had my lesson plan and I was just striking kind of red lines through so much of it, just trying to keep it as accessible as possible. Only the thing is, the prison I was in had a lot of people who were doing very heavy time, had been in for, you know, a couple of decades, like a couple of fierce kind of autodidacts reading a book a day in their cell, people who'd done open universities degrees. So they were kind of, um, you know, nitpicking and what I was saying about Hobbes or Rousseau or Locke, I thought, oh my God, I'm going to get found out here. So, you know, it was even for someone like me who has a lot of experience of people from that world, there are still many, many more people in that world, you know, there's no such thing as the prison or the prisoner. Every prisoner kind of comes with their own history. Every prison is its own kind of ecosystem with its own culture. And it's true that, you know, I do have people in my class who are illiterate and oh, do kind of remind me of my uncle or whatever, but I also have PhDs, you know, and it's my job to teach them. And uh, yeah, you keep showing you your toes.
0: One of the things that I found incredibly moving was that on several occasions, you've sort of seen the back of a prisoner and he's been of a certain age and a certain build. And you're wondering, is that my father? Mm. Tell me about that.
2: Yeah. So my dad, he got, he got sentenced. I was looking at the time when I was about 12, looking at going back to prison. And at that point, I just sort of allowed contact to fizzle out and stop. And I suppose it's a weird thing because, you know, I've never seen him since. And occasionally you kind of glimpse people on the bus or get into an elevator with a man who I notice he has a kind of emphysemic wheeze or kind of yellowed cigarette fingers or whatever and you just kind of crane your neck just you know without being noticed just to try and see the face or whatever
0: um seems like a loss there
2: yeah I don't know because I kind of think actually my dad departing from my life was probably one of the best things that ever happened to me you know people often ask me how come you didn't kind of go down the same path as some of the men in your family and part of the reason is because uh, my father was kind of removed from my life so you know it gave me a kind of a chance to kind of stand up tall it gave
0: me some headroom. But you're a philosopher so Mm. I imagine philosophers can hold two thoughts in their heads at the same time. Mm. But I would imagine it's probably central to being a philosopher. So, can it be both the best thing that ever happened that uh, you gave up contact with him, and also a loss?
2: I suppose it's it's the loss of a father, rather than kind of that father. You know, I was better off without that father. Maybe you know, life would have been easier if I'd had, you know, a loving, caring, supportive father who who was responsible and could look after me and everything. But I find that just, that thought is kind of so many possible worlds away from this one that I don't know what value there is in entertaining it for too long,
0: you know. Is there a direct connection between your interest in philosophy and all of these things we've been talking about?
2: Yes, there is basically, in in a few ways. That story of, you know, going to visit my brother in prison and then coming out and the kind of the deep sense of alienation i think you feel from ordinary life just kind of ticking along nicely when you've kind of witnessed this other place that's part of the philosophical impulse this idea that but there is another story but there is another dimension but there is a forgotten angle here and we need to include it there was just this sense of like the doubleness of things there was there was the outside world but there was also this this world behind this wall. And and I think that's, you know, you say that philosophy is about holding two thoughts in your head at once. It is about dealing with those tensions and not, and not being able to kind of get away from those tensions in your day-to-day life. So I think, I think that was formative. I also think a lot of the, a lot of the conversations I had growing up, a lot of the stories I heard, it's kind of formed some of my philosophical preoccupations. So There's a chapter in the book called Laughter, which is all about gallows humour. I grew up around an awful lot of gallows humour. You know, my uncle or whatever had, my brother, you know, survived kind of intensely violent situations, stabbings and all kinds of things. And would recount these stories to you with like...
0: You used to look at your brother and ask him to go through his wounds and tell you all about them. He must have loved that.
2: Well, yeah, I suppose that, like, these these periods of, you know, when someone's away in prison, they're kind of accumulating experience apart from you. So I think almost after he got clean and a bit kind of straight, there was a kind of catching up to do. And a a lot of those stories were were gruesome stories, but recounted with, you know, great comic timing and absurdity and and gallows humour. And, you know, I guess I always had this thought of is this gallows humor helping us to survive or is it slowly killing us you know in another way and that's the conversation I take into my classroom and discuss with the men and you know they have different thoughts about it so a lot of my preoccupations I think are formed by the kind of extreme aspects of my childhood the biggest one I think is free will and determinism
0: Okay, well, let's use that as an example of what you do and how philosophy can help us. The thing that I found absolutely fascinating was that some of the material you use is some of the same material I use in my therapy room. So let's do freedom. (laughs) Who is free? And you use, and this is something that I use, myth as well. And so we've got Odysseus, and the sirens. So for people who don't know the story, fill us in, and then perhaps you can give us a sense of of how you use it in prison and how the discussion goes.
2: Yeah, so a brief summary of the, the story. I got this lesson plan from my great friend Peter Worley, who's kind of turned the Odyssey into all these wonderful philosophical thought experiments. There's an, an episode in the, the Odyssey where Odysseus has to get home, but he has to get past the sirens, these These kind of half-bird, half-woman creatures who live out on the rocks and they have a a singing voice that's so golden and pure that any sailor who hears it will fall under the spell and want to get closer to the sound of that song. But when they do, the sirens will eat them. They're man-eating sirens.
0: Because they're going to be, first of all, they're going to be dashed against the rocks and then they're going to be sirens' supper.
2: That's right. So the men on Odysseus's ship simply plug their ears with a kind of wax so that they can just go on, you know, oblivious to the sound. They won't hear it. They'll just you know, keep the ropes orderly or prepare the food or row or whatever their job is that day. But Odysseus wants to hear the sirens, he wants to live to tell the tale, be the first man to hear the sirens and live to tell the tale. So he asks the men to strap him to the mast and when the siren starts singing, he becomes, you know, drunk with love and for the sound and wildly passionate. And he wants them to. He begs his men to untie him, and he, he demands it as king and as captain. He'd be untied, but they ignore his order because previous to that, he'd ordered them to ignore his order. <laughs> it's, a, it's a very convoluted state Odysseus is in, but maybe still one we can relate to, and. In the story I tell, there's a man who stops what he's doing and looks at Odysseus, and in seeing how alive Odysseus looks, this man sort of realises how, how unalive he feels and how the war in Troy and the journey home and the homesickness and everything is, has kind of taken him beyond pain to a kind of numbness and a kind of deadness, and so he becomes curious about what the sirens sound like, and so he takes the wax out of his ears, just so he can know that sensation of passion again. But no sooner has he done that than he jumps overboard and swims to the sirens and swims to his death. Afterwards, Odysseus is quite haunted by what happened because he knows there's something that exquisite and beautiful in the world that he'll never get to hear again and that will maybe make everything else that's beautiful a bit less so for having this comparison. And I pause the story there and I, I ask the people in my class, I say, look, there's three types of people in this story. There's the men with wax in their ears, there's Odysseus tied up, and there's the man who takes the wax out of his ears. Who do you think is the most free in this story? And the conversation just runs for sometimes hours. You know, we, we've discussed that for two and a half, three hours sometimes, because it's such a fertile story and, and the, the themes of freedom are are so powerful. And I think it connects to prison life as well. You know, there's there's often this affinity between sailors and prisoners throughout culture and literature and history. But I think the various men in that story, you see them on the landing. You see the one who wants big, ecstatic experiences. You, you see the man jumping off the ship, you know, because he feels numb. You, you know, there's plenty of suicides in prison. You see the men who just get their head down and just want a quiet life and don't want to be entangled and have the wax in their ears and that's how they're going to survive this day.
0: And uh, I think we can also recognise that out here in, for want of a better word, civilian world, a lot of us have wax in our ears, don't we?
2: Yes, yeah. I mean, um, so one man in my class said, I think he's the most free, the guy with the wax in his ears. And I said, why? And I said, well, he's free from choice. He can just go about his, his life ordinarily. And we in prison here, we're also free from choice, you know. We don't have to decide what to do with our day. It's all decided for us. We don't have to worry about when we're going to cook. We just get given our food at a certain time. We It's a simple life here, and, and there's a kind of freedom in that, that there's not outside where so much is coming at you so fast. And, you know, if you, if you go on the tube on the rush hour and you see people – numbing out on their phones or spending another day in a job they hate or whatever, you know, perhaps they're also free from choice. Um, If you've ever scrolled through Netflix at 11pm at night, you know, and you've been on it for two hours, just trying to try to pick a film to watch, you wouldn't mind being free from choice after a while. There's a kind of uh, paralysis that sets in with consumerism and the infinite options of the internet and that kind of thing.
0: But actually, if you don't have the wax in the ears and you hear the beauty of the sirens, you are not free either, really, are you? In the sense that, uh, you know, the lure of the sirens is so great. And, you know, the lure of our phones are so great that we can be, you know, thinking, oh, that message might come through. I'll just sort of check it. And, you know, you're you're off with the sirens, so to speak.
2: Yeah, I, I suppose... All the characters in that story, are their freedom is compromised in some way. They're getting something they want. They're getting a peaceful existence or an ecstatic existence or whatever. But their freedom is compromised somehow, in some way, which is often where the discussion goes in the classroom of, well, what does freedom mean? If if nobody has it in the absolute, whether you're on the inside or the outside, what does it mean to be free? What, What forms of freedom are most worth having? and what forms of freedom are potentially dangerous to us.
0: Because particularly in America, uh, the idea of freedom is uh, incredibly powerful and people want freedom. But what is it that they are actually after?
2: Well, I suppose that's one of the reasons why prison and incarceration is, is such a big enterprise, I think, in America, because freedom is so important that you can convince yourself that you have it. If you, you you know you you're walking past the prison and you think, well the people in there are not free, so I must be free, because that's what unfreedom looks like and this this must be what freedom looks like. But you know, we know that America, for example, has a much lower rate of social mobility than most Western European countries that have a similar GDP. We know that, you know, more and more behaviors are being criminalized and things like that. So so that rhetoric of freedom, you know, once you sort of dig down into it, it's uh, questionable.
0: So how are we like Odysseus? How are we tied to the mast? Odysseus is, is the captain, and
2: he's the king, in fact, of Ithaca. He's the one who come up with the Trojan horse. He's the one who blinded the cyclops. He's he's smart. He's cunning. He gets away with things he shouldn't. The gods should have crushed him a long time ago, but he's still going. He has black hair, which uh, in those days, in, in the the stories of uh, Greek heroes, you, you almost had to have like a golden London hair to, to be a hero. So he beats the odds all the time. And he's the one who gets to hear the sirens and not go to the underworld. He's the one who gets to live to tell the tale. And maybe there's something about that feeling of invincibility that Odysseus always seems to have, which... You know, he's the original Superman. He's the original James Bond or whatever. He's, the bullets bounce off him somehow. And that can feel like a type of freedom. There's there's a man in, who I write about in the book who thought Odysseus was the most free. And, you know, I remember him coming into my class, pair of trainers that must have cost 500 quid or something, Nike exclusives, very kind of fresh looking, clean shaven, smart, introduced himself to me as an entrepreneur and, you know, spent, The end of the lesson, when we'd finished, took my whiteboard pen and was explaining to the other men in the group how you could become a Bitcoin millionaire within six months if you just do this, this, and this. So I think to to a certain you know to a certain mindset that is freedom, you know. And 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 what he would say is living for you know having the wax in your ears. What's the point in that freedom? What's the point in that you know submissive, servile? no surprises type of life. That's, that's not a free life. No, nothing happens. It's not worth
0: it. But in what way is Odysseus not free? Because I, th- I, think, I think nowadays we all want to be Odysseus. You know, that uh, the idea of actually being one of the sailors is deeply unappealing. We all want to be James Bond's Superman Odysseus, you know, the king of, um, the, king of the bitcoins.
2: Well, I mean he's he's not free in as much as he's um, he's tied up. I mean there's a there's a physical restriction there. He's in a deep state of conflict, uh, in that he wants to, to go to the Sirens, but he's he can't. And that's the kind of horrible turmoil. And then I suppose that, you know, maybe this is the point in the story where Odysseus just got too cocky and he didn't realise what he was letting himself in for. And actually that that song it it's it's put a chink in his armor. It's it's uh, haunted him. It's 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 broken his heart.
0: So unlimited freedom can break you.
2: Well, we know that Odysseus gets home.
0: Yes, in a pretty sorry state, I have to say. <laughs> <but>. <laughs> yeah, I
2: think there's something about that kind of you know, burn bright, burn fast, freedom, which um, is glorious when it's happening, but you have to live in the ruins of it afterwards, don't you? And that's the case for a lot of people in prison, I think, who, you know, risk everything on a a big drug deal that's going to make them, you know, good money and whatever. But then they're on their toes for a few months, trying not to get arrested. Their money's not their own. This was certainly the case with my uncle. You know, you can't put it in the bank. (laughs) You can't invest it. You can't. You have to just keep buying people drinks in the pub and, you know, Hope you spend it before the police catch you, and then they do catch you, and you have to kind of live in the ruins of it.
0: Often these stories have survived, and these philosophical ideas have survived because often you're talking about the ancient Greeks with these philosophers because they hold something that is deeply human. It's almost as if how's about this for an idea? Philosophy is medicine. What do you think of that idea?
2: Yeah, so there's an ancient Greek word, um, forgive my pronunciation, it's always terrible with ancient Greek, parkamon, which is used to describe both knowledge or sort of insight and medicine. But it's a it's a complex medicine. It's a, it's a medicine that's also, it's both cure and poison. It's not without side effects like most medicines. That do their work, they also cost you something.
0: What has philosophy cost you? Well, because I can see how it might have healed, but um, I never thought that it might be a cost. So I would be fascinated to find out what the cost is.
2: I suppose it's a little bit like eating the apple. It's this idea of you're no longer in paradise because there's there's a lost innocence. There's something you know now. There's there's a a shattered simplicity and the world is now much more complex than we we thought it was. You know, I'm very happy to live in that much more complex world and I I don't want to go back to the garden, but I think it can, you know, there can be uh, something painful about the process of rethinking, reimagining your, your life, your experience, the world, society. And I often think that with my, my students, there's this, a wonderful word in philosophy, aporia, which translates to, to be without a path. And it describes the the kind of moment in a philosophical conversation, the kind of impasse that you come to, where your beliefs and assumptions and ideas, which perhaps you've held to quite tightly, perhaps they've been part of your identity, you reach a point in a philosophical conversation where they become a bit, they come undone slightly. And what you thought you knew is now in doubt. And maybe it's in serious doubt. And you come to a point in the field where there's no path anymore. You're in a kind of wilderness. You're kind of stranded. And that's a very, for me as a philosopher, that's a very thrilling state.
0: And for me as a therapist, it's a very thrilling state as well.
2: Sure. And as you'll you'll probably know and and see in your clients it's a state of great anxiety and fear also uh, at the same time and there's some there there are questions i have about doing philosophy in prison with people who are in such a kind of survivalist headspace to start kind of um, having these conversations where they could be stranded you know that there's an incredible vulnerability to that and then they go back to the landing and they have to kind of you know manage all of that in that in that um space i you know i have questions about what that's like for them
1: the meaningful life with andrew g marshall please follow us on twitter like us on facebook and visit our website andrewg forward slash podcast where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits
0: If there's something going on in your life and uh, you need a little bit of philosophical help or some therapeutic th- help or just a different perspective, each week I have very different guests to discuss what makes life meaningful. And each of them, I put a dilemma, a letter or a question to you. And if you'd like to be somebody who's going to send me a letter, go to www andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find out how to send a letter to us. You'll also find out how to subscribe to our Substack newsletter and get more information about The Meaningful Life and my ideas on making a better uh, relationships and a better life. And here is this week's. Why was I a fool and believe my husband? I had a gut feeling that things did not add up. Strange behaviour, painkillers in his pockets which he said a girl at work had given him because he had toothache, taking his phone into the bathroom when he was soaking in the tub. But I told myself my husband would never do something like cheating. So I bought the story about the painkillers, even though it did not add up, because I suppose I wanted to believe him. However, a few months later, I found out who the girl at work was because of Facebook and matching her phone number to the number on her profile. I confronted my husband again and he swears he has always had female friends like this and he is madly in love with me. He told me they started texting when she was in the office crying over an abortion her fiancé had talked her into. He says he was just being a good person and giving her emotional support. I was devastated. I demanded he quit all contact with her and he said if he was cheating then yes. He could stop completely but he isn't. So it would look strange to just abruptly stop talking to someone you consider a good friend and didn't want to hurt her feelings. I suppose I didn't want to be the bad guy who cut her support system away, and it sounded innocent. Of course, I now know that they've been having an affair all along. I feel like I gave him permission by not putting my foot down sooner or stronger. So could philosophy help in a a situation like this, do you think, Andy?
2: It's a very painful story. I suppose there's two things I want to say. One is a question and I suppose one is a message. I suppose my my message here is that um she she blames herself as as though she sort of let this happen by I think she says not putting her foot down sooner. And I I suppose I'd, you know, whether as a sort of philosopher or as a as a friend or a stranger or a human uh, being even. Yeah, I suppose I'd want to say the responsibility really lies with him on this because, you know, you you confronted him on it a couple of times and a couple of times he denied it. And, you know, you, you sort of did everything you could to make sure you were having an honest relationship and, and he didn't keep up his end of the bargain here. That's not your fault. You know, when, when something is really painful, has happened to us like that, I think we want to feel like there was something we could have done that we, we could have had more control over the situation. But sadly, I don't think she does in this situation. And um, it's it's a very difficult thing to live with, but it's difficult enough to live with without getting into self-blame, I think. So, you know, it's it's a different story, but, you know, my, my book, I suppose, and my story is sort of about self-blame and breaking free of that, in that I sort of, I carry some of the guilt from my father, which is, you know, Rightfully, his and not mine, and I think I've had to learn how to ignore that voice that says i'm "I'm to blame here.
0: How do you ignore that voice?
2: Well, I think for me it's it is really a case of ignoring it rather than trying to stop it or silence it. You know it's a voice that's been with me for you know over twenty years, and it's been with me since my brain was sort of very plastic, you know it's almost part of the architecture so so I don't have any ambitions to make it go away, but uh, but I can just when I hear it, which thankfully is a lot less these days, I can turn my attention elsewhere, you know, to a friendship, to nature, to whatever sensations are available to me there and then the, the taste of my tea, the feeling of walking, the feeling of my feet, you know, pressing into the ground as I walk. I think it's just about, it's a bit like a bully at school, you know, just ignore him.
0: And what's your question?
2: My question is about one of the details in her story, which is painkillers. It's a very painful story. And she suspects his affair when she finds painkillers in his pocket. And I I wondered where that came from. And and why would him having painkillers be indicative of him having an affair? I wondered what the context was there. And and I sort of wondered what, what pain was around for... For him, for her, for the third party, the woman in this relationship, for their relationship. You know, why painkillers?
0: It's a good question. What pain was around for each of these people?
2: Yeah. Yes, because normally, you know, those signs that someone's having an affair, it's, you know, you came home smelling of a woman's perfume or, you know, on your credit card, why are you spending money on hotels or whatever. But painkillers is is a sort of rogue element in the story, but I, I a don't fascinating know.
0: I'm, one. I'm thinking that um, generally, if your partner is in pain and has gone to the doctor and has actually managed to get painkillers for whatever the pain is, you sort of know about it, don't you? And then suddenly you're finding something that it just doesn't make any kind of sense. And I think our tendency then is to try and sort of find an answer to this which she was given but actually it sort of is something that's telling us that something is wrong there's some missing piece of the or actually not there's a missing piece of the jigsaw I've got one piece of the jigsaw and the rest of it doesn't really make sense
2: yes yes so she they obviously knew each other very well and their lives were very entwined and They knew the the sort of rhythms of each other's life. And then here's this strange thing that can't be explained. And
0: So I think, I mean, that um, as somebody who listens to many stories about affairs, that when people actually trail things back, there are all these strange pieces of jigsaw that don't make an awful lot of sense. And then suddenly, when you've actually allowed yourself to see what the picture might be, then they make incredible sense. And this is what I think our brains are so cruel about. We somehow, once we've actually seen the whole picture and, you know, what we've got is an eye sort of kind of thing we found in the first thing, we think we should be able to know that just because we found the eye it's a picture of Queen Victoria sort of kind of, <laughs> kind of thing, when of course we can't. And what strikes me is this desire to be in control of life and I don't know quite what philosophy it is, you'll be able to help me, that we so much want to be in control of life rather than at the mercy of random things that happen, that we will take responsibility and blame for things that actually have nothing to do with us, but it's actually much better to be in control and holding all the nasty stuff than actually being buffeted by the flotsam and jetsam and the randomness of life. I think there's a philosophy here somewhere, help, help me out.
2: Yes, I, I completely agree that um, it sort of makes it easier to say it's our fault because then we can convince ourselves we can prepare for it next time and won't let it happen again and whatever. But um, that's the thing about love and human relationships: is um, we do have to surrender control to some degree. That's what trusting another person entails. You know, I if we're talking about philosophy. If you go to Epictetus and the Stoics and Seneca, a lot of that wisdom is very good wisdom. You know, it's about realizing what you can control and what you can't control. And realizing that free will and agency is about focusing your life on what you can control and pursuing that. So, you know, Epictetus was a slave. He was an enslaved person who believed that he still had a kind of freedom because no matter what was happening to him, he could choose his response to it. This is something we see with prisoners like Viktor Frankl in *Man's Search for Meaning*. You know, between stimulus and response, there is a there's a moment, there's a gap, and in that, we can choose how we respond. And you know, I think if you're dealing it, if you're living in extremists, if you're living under the tyrant or under Her Majesty's Prison Service, there's there's real help in that wisdom. But where I end with those thinkers is if you read them on friendship and on love and on relationships, because they tend to sort of reduce the role of those pleasures in life. They tend to say, well, those things are outside of your control, you know, other people and whatever. So this isn't something you should invest too much of your time in. And it's the same in prison. You know, there's not many great friendships on the landing. People keep themselves to themselves. They're detached. That's how they survive it. And for me, that's just as as Hume and... Hegel and other philosophers said about the Stoics, that's just too incomplete a life, a life that's, that's centered so much on self control and focusing on the things you can control. That kind of Stoic self tyranny is what Nietzsche calls it. A more complete life is one that has relationships. And it's very painful that in this situation, with this woman who has, you know, trusted her partner and that that hasn't been sort of honoured.
0: Thank you very much for that, Andy, and thank you very much for the letter as well. We've fastly running out of time, so I have to ask you, what makes your life meaningful?
2: I mean, it's two things, and they're both they're both related. One is, I think the work I do, you know, I'm noticeably just more cheerful when I've just come out of prison and I come home to my friends. I think that's... <laughs> I think that's because of a a sort of narrative sense of who I am in that, you know, growing up very close to that world and then being a sort of class migrant, certainly culturally and going to university, you know, and studying a subject as rarefied as philosophy and living in that sort of polite society. You know, I, I often feel like I'm straddling two worlds and neither one is fully at home in the other. And You know, the great thing about the prison classroom for me is I get to be kind of both of those people, the person who came from where he came from and the person who loves to talk about philosophy. So it's a very complete existence that I kind of have in the classroom. And then I think uh, one thing that's often made my life kind of meaningful is maybe gratitude. I've always always been very quick to gratitude uh, and going into prison kind of maintains that. You know, it really small things become very significant when you've just stepped out of a prison, you know, just, just having like, just having milk in your tea or just getting to sit and enjoy a tea or just that, just that there are trees on my street, you know, and I get to see them every morning and the leaves are changing right now and it's going to be bare in the winter. And I'm looking forward to that because the light's going to come through differently. That's, that's a feeling I've had ever since visiting family in prison that, that actually outside here, independently of any financial wealth or anything, there's an incredible abundance around us all the time. If only we pay attention to it, if only we remember it, you know. So I think gratitude is is a big part of the, a meaningful life for me.
0: That's beautiful. Now, if you'd like to hear more of this conversation, it does continue. We're going to discuss shame and the story of Pandora's box or Pandora's jar. Because uh, interestingly enough, this is a story that I use in my therapy room, and Andy uses it in his classroom in prison. So it's going to be fascinating to find out about that story, the healing power of it, and these two very different approaches. If you want to hear this bonus material, you can subscribe directly via Apple or Spotify. We're all- also available on Amazon Music. If you want to become a supporter of The Meaningful Life, here are the details.
1: You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Healy, sound engineering and theme tune by sebastian de la luz mendoza and i'm suzy colick please tell your friends and spread the word thank you